Are you curious on how much your business is worth? Get your free no obligation offer from Open Store at open.store. The subscription market is predicted to grow to nearly $500 billion by 2025. Recharge is a leading subscription management solution helping e-commerce merchants of all sizes launch and scale their subscription offerings. Over 15,000 merchants use subscriptions powered by Recharge to grow their business and their communities by increasing average order value, reducing churn, and providing predictable recurring revenue. Turn transactions into long-term customer relationships and experience seamless subscription commerce with Recharge. Check them out at rechargepayments.com forward slash DTC pod. What's up, DTC pod? Um, today, we're really excited for the convo. We're joined by Melanie Masserin, who is the co-founder and CEO of Gia. Um, previously, she's had some really awesome experience in the DTC landscape um, with brands such as Dig In as well as Glossier. So without any further ado, let's kick it off. Melanie, um, Thanks for joining us on the pod today. Why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, what you're building with Gia? Yeah, well, Gia is a non-alcoholic aperitif. Um, it turns two years old next week, so we're very excited. Um, you know, it was really born out of the desire to bring people together without the social stigma that revolves around not drinking. I was noticing that every time I was opting out of a drink, you know, someone else would follow, but that there would be nothing for us to really drink or enjoy. That was like a complex drink, something that would feel very grown up and would be really delicious and made well with like early source ingredients. So um, I set out to start just that. And um, uh, two years later, Gia was launched. So that's amazing. And what was the, um, you know, I, I why don't we, before we get into too much into the details of Gia, why don't we st- go back a little bit? Um, in time and talk about some of the previous things you've worked on and let's try to like suss out the path that led you to Gia starting your own company. So before Gia, before launching this amazing company, um, you know, where were you and what was your foray into the, uh, you know, consumer sort of space? Well, I always really loved food. So I grew up in Lyon, which is um, in sort of the middle of France where no one can really place in the cities and my grandparents lived in the south and I would go there all the time and cook with them and so I feel like food had a huge influence on my life. Lyon was a very food-centric city um, that um, that you know has many chefs, has started you know culinary schools that has really um, you know had a lot of influence uh, in terms of bringing French cuisine to the rest of the world and, and I just I didn't know all this until I left and realized you know where is all my great food? So I, I left for college. I went to Brown, love Brown, also a very food centric city. And of course, I ended up working in the cafeteria uh, when I was trying to pay for college. And I ended up running dining services at Brown, which was like a group of 10 student led restaurants. I graduated. I worked in finance for a little bit, um, like two years, exactly two years. And then I left um, I, and, um, you know, I wanted to do something that was maybe more tangible and something I loved more. And very coincidentally, um, was introduced to the founder and CEO of Degin in New York. And I joined that team for its next few years. I worked on their rebrand. Uh, it was a really ta- exciting time for the company and they really let me kind of learn by doing, which was really exciting. So I worked on um, a lot of different initiatives there left and uh, was recruited by the team at Glossier, 
to join um, their retail team, which was basically a retail team of one. Um, and um, from there, I spent the following few years um, working on sort of like building the third dimension of this incredible digital brand, where I was pretty much responsible for anything offline for the company. And when I left, I was consulting for a number of people. Um, Sweet Green was a big client of mine. And I say big because the project that we were doing was very big for one person. And um, also because they were just like super, the scale of the project was amazing. I designed their headquarters in LA and they were also really big cheerleaders of mine and remain to this day. And um, I ended up you know, working on a number of projects and really starting to think about what it is that I wanted to do. And, on a trip to Italy, I just like it just hit me because I had been complaining for so many years about having nothing to drink, and I was with one of the sweet green people there, and you know I, I think I told that story so many times, but we were pretty much arguing over whether to order another apple spritz or pasta, and uh, one thing led to another, and he said I think this is what you need to create, and I came home. I was living in New York at the time. I was about to move to LA, and I started looking into non-alcoholic spirits like i literally googled non-alcoholic alcohol <laughs> and mm -hmm. i realized there was like a few brands in the uk that were doing that i was like this is so interesting and i put and i got my hands on some of them and they were all like like gin alternatives kind of which i was like even when i was drinking i never wanted gin so that was not something that was for me but i was like it's crazy that it's working in the uk where you know drinking is so ingrained in the culture and so, um, you know, I was like, what if I created something that maybe was a different drink, something that's not trying to buzz you in a certain way, or, because a few months into starting Gia, Kin launched. Um, and so that was obviously a very functional beverage that was also addressing sort of the same issue. And, um, you know, I was very excited to see it happen because I realized they were probably, you know, responding to customer demand was I was trying to interview people and interview chef and figure out, you know, if people wanted this product and I couldn't get one single person to tell me, yes, I just had this really strong gut feeling that supply would drive them in. Um, and so I was really excited when Kin launched because I was like, okay, maybe I'm onto something. Someone else has noticed, surely these very organized founders have this answer that I've been looking for, but I wanted to create something that was very different. And um, I um, worked on Gia really, you know, first, hired a food scientist um, and I worked with him super closely, kind of explaining to him the tasting notes that I was craving when I was ordering a drink. I, you know, I didn't want a mocktail, I didn't want something that was juice-based, I didn't want something that would be like, definitely not a cocktail that starts with virgin something, you know? I wanted a real drink, uh, I wanted something really delicious and, and um, you know, I wanted something that was very dry and something that was a little bitter, very refreshing, maybe herbal, and that's kind of how I created Gia. So one quick question, just to jump in there, what is the difference, I guess, between a, um, you know, like you were saying, a mocktail versus what you guys are offering, like a non-alcoholic spirit? Is it something like, for example, I know in, in non-alcoholic beer, there's like technically trace amounts of alcohol in it, but it's not like really alcoholic. So where, where do you guys play in terms of like what the drink is and does that, and with that, does there come any regulation or are you just like a um, another you know, something that's really accessible to, to drink like a juice or something like that? Well, you know, I think mocktail sort of implies that it's like a, a non-alcoholic cocktail. So you could say that technically Gia is that, although we prefer, um, I think, I think mocktails because they're often made in-house, they're made with fresh ingredients. So you can't have 
these sort of tasting notes that you have in Gia, if you're making this live, you would need to, you know, press oranges or um, maybe ferment something. So it would be completely different tasting notes. And I think that they always, as a result, end up being very sweet. They're also very um, layered. It's like, you know, a lot of different ingredients. And we really wanted to create something that was very simple. Like, what is the equivalent of a Campari soda? And so that's a lot more of like an aperitivo, an amaro. It's something that you will eat most likely before dinner um, as your first drink of the evening to sort of prime your palate for the evening, for the food that's about to come. And so that's the category that we were looking at, but we wanted to create a 0.0 version that had the same complexity. So for that, you need to create extracts. Um, the trace amount of alcohol that you mentioned in beer is a little bit different. Most non-alcoholic beer is brewed and then de-alcoholized. Um, so sometimes there's trace amounts of that. So it's, it would be brewed like a normal beer and then de-alcoholized. Um, but Gia is, you know, we have extracts that are made individually and then we mix those. So um, we're 0.0%. There's always a little bit of fermentation. So, you know, you could you could say that when Gia is bottled, it's 0.0%, but it's possible that it's 0.02% in a month just because, you know, I think a banana is 0.3% or something like that. So um, natural fermentation can occur, but they let you use the term non-alcoholic for less than 0.5% because it's completely safe to drink for everyone. I, I wonder what your process was like when you were talking with the chefs and explaining this, you know, possible concept, um, because they're like, well, you know, why shouldn't I just, you know, we, we sell virgin drinks here. That's totally fine. Um, and then, you know, how did you decompose their feedback to whether it's actually something that people would buy or not, especially when your brand is so good and so strong um, that like the element of branding um, in terms of like trying to get feedback verbally for like, you know, what you envision in the brand is, is almost impossible. So you're just going just based on the need. How, how did you decompose that feedback and, and what was that process like? Honestly, it was many steps to get there. Um, at first, when I was trying to even explain what I was doing, people were like, you're doing what? And, you know, the first people I asked were my parents and they were like, why would anyone buy this if it doesn't have alcohol in it and that's a lot of the answer that we still get today and um i think that we've had to kind of find our champions who understand that the value of our beverage is not in its ethanol content so um it's been really tricky and then you know you give them the first formula and they're like are you sure there's no alcohol in this <laughs> because you know that's when you know that you've done something right and that it tastes the right way but still it was confusing for a lot of people to learn how to market it and so the way that we asked a lot of restaurants you know, to take us on and we we're like, we'll give you a case of it, put it on the menu. And if you haven't sold it by next week, we'll take it back. Um, which, you know, now that the world is reopened, it's like a little bit harder to do. We were very early and now obviously there's like a lot of demand and a lot of supplies. So we don't have to prove ourselves as much. It's more, you know, us versus others, because I think m more and more people are realizing like we need to have non-alcoholic menus. But, um, you know, it, it was definitely like at first you have to convince them that there's the need for a non-alcoholic category. And then you have to convince them that, you know, the people that are not drinking want this type of product. Um, and it's funny, even like sober bartenders sometimes like are harder to convince. And then once you put it in front of them, you get them hooked and, um, and, and it becomes much easier. So, Melanie, what was your, your strategy early on in, in the formulation stage, right? Um, was, th was this, 
you coming up with something, some taste that you had been familiar with and saying, this is the type of drink we want to bring to scale. And then once you guys had um, initial sort of formulation after that, what was the first, uh, what was the first move you guys made? Were you saying, oh, we want to take this and sell it directly into bartenders at restaurants? Or was there another angle to sell those first uh, couple cases of production? Sorry, I lost you for a second. Can you just repeat that? Sure. Um, when you guys had just when you guys had just started the brand, right, and you were going through the formulation, what was the thought in terms of who were the first people that you were going to sell this to, right? Like, I know you guys are available right now online and retail and restaurants, etc. But was this a product that you created that you said we're going to sell our first batches through bartenders at restaurants, or how did you think about that the first push of sales you would make? Well, that was a, that would could be a very simple question, except the answer is quite complicated. When we set out to create Gia and launch Gia, we actually had um, our go-to-market strategy was let's convince 50 restaurants to take us on. And then for the first, you know, three to six months of our launch, let's just see how the feedback is from the community and from the culinary world. Let's let our product be introduced by chef. And so we did all this work to lock in all of these accounts and then... We were supposed to launch in April 2020 and COVID hit and all the restaurants pretty much in the world shut down. So then we had made all these products um, and we didn't know at the time, you know, that it could be shelf stable for longer than a few months. So we thought we were going to lose all of our production, which was obviously, you know, most of the money that we had. And so we completely pivoted to online, which, you know, there were some silver linings too, but shipping glass bottles full of liquid um, is a very tricky thing to figure out. So there were tons of, um, it was not easy. Um, and, you know, it's pretty much defined our strategy for the following, you know, year. And now just in 2022, we're finally starting to ramp up in grocery stores, um, small natural grocers and whatnot. Got it. Um, no, that's, that's really cool to think about just the strategy and launching the brand and saying, hey, we want this to be a, um, you know, a really culinary focused brand where it's introduced by the chefs and then having to go through that pivot and realize, oh my God, all these restaurants that we had initially targeted to in this go-to-market is going to have to get shaken up a little. And the fact that you were able to be nimble and, um, and, and kind of survive that. Um, so, and then... I think I think one one important thing to that is like, you know, especially as like you're starting the brand and that happens, you probably think like, oh, no, like it's our initial like beginning of the brand, like our reputation with these restaurants. But really, like a lot of these mistakes probably happen in the in the very early. It's so early in the company that I mean, I'm sure you were able to go back and, and rebuild those relationships with with the restaurants. Um and it wasn't the end of the world, or did you just completely stick to e-commerce and you never went back to to working with restaurants again? Um, so both actually, there were you know there were a number of accounts that unfortunately never made it um, past the pandemic. Um, so a lot of our accounts just shut down permanently, and then um, the ones that had decided to take us on, you know, often their bar teams had changed. So we had to rebuild these relationships from scratch. It's not like you meet with the main chef. It's like often, especially good restaurants, like they have a bar team that's very well trained, um, that will, that will make these decisions. And the chef doesn't really interfere with that because they're not the experts on liquids. So it was a little bit of both. We're very proud now to be on over a hundred menus, you know, in restaurants and in bars in America, I think probably like 150 now. Um, 
but it definitely took a lot of work. Our strategy, though, was always very much to support the culinary industry and, and it will remain that way, I think, for the long term. So when, you know, a lot of um, restaurants pivoted to selling groceries to survive, we donated some of our production to them to help them stay afloat. And so it was a completely different strategy. We weren't getting that much feedback. There wasn't all this kind of like explanation, all the things we needed. However, um, you know, I think we we strengthened those relationships and, and a lot of those ended up taking us on afterwards. Yeah, and I bet it sounds like it sounds like the strategy that it's not just getting in, but then it's like the taking care of those relationships, those restaurants. Like you almost need someone to have that be their full-time job um as like the employees change in the restaurant etc um yeah that's yeah and and there's so much there's so much turnover in restaurants like you were saying there were some unfortunately that through the pandemic um didn't make it out but what i what i like about and i think is unique i think what's fun about talking to all the different brands is that everyone has like a unique way of building their um brand and i think for you guys really taking that restaurant first approach. Um, that's not something that you see. You're not, you, you weren't setting out to just create another, uh, you know, grocery store product that's available on every shelf. You were saying, let's actually build something that's amazing um, from a culinary point of view that can be introduced from the restaurants. So I think that makes um, Gia and your strategy and your go-to-market really unique. Um, the next question I'd have as it comes down to... Um, you know, production of, of Gia and how you were building it. How do you go about uh, producing and what was the first, um, you know, the, the first formulation and the first runs of product? How were how you building those and how are you delivering um, those once you, once you started working with your uh, formulation scientists? You mean how are we making the first batches of Gia or how are we delivering it to the people that were Yes. Yeah, like how, how, how are you making it? Like, were you, were you going to uh, a manufacturer and running a small contract or like what what did the first couple batches look like in terms of production? Well, our very first batch of Gia, and I don't even know how a co-packer let us even do that because now our minimums are so much higher, but it was 1,200 bottles. And I remember thinking that it was just more bottles than I had ever seen before. And now you walk through a warehouse and it's just like, you know, what, I don't know, we sell in like... A few days or something um but uh and then we're only two years in maybe not a few days um but it was like we went there and to this day actually which i think is very different from a lot of other um you know beverage producers like we are in the warehouse and we are in the uh, production facility with every single production because you know it's not like oh it was really easy finding a factory um i think the reality is like we have a glass bottle that looks somewhat like a spirit bottle so you need a factory that will be used to working with food products, not alcohol products. Alcohol really preserves, you know, the drink. And so for us, if you have bacteria that gets into the bottle, um, you can obviously have contamination much faster. So you needed to go to a manufacturer that maybe worked with like fresh juices or much more fragile ingredients that also had refrigeration, um, sometimes even um, freezers, which, you know, is not that easy. Our ingredients take a lot of space. A lot of them are fresh or need to be kept cold. Like our yuzu arrives frozen from Japan because we want it to be as fresh as possible. And um, and so we had to find all of that. But on top of that, they had to have the bottling line of an alcohol facility. So already you're looking for a needle in a stack of hay. And then they've never tried a product before. Like that would be like bitter, non-alcoholic, like an Amaro, 
Um, they're often not, you know, people that are experts in alcohol. And so we just had to be there. So um, the first production run up until this day um, is really high touch. We, you know, we have the lab sample, we scale it up little by little. When we made our 1200 bottles, we thought that would be the most. And I think our last production was like 50,000 bottles. Um, so, but, you know, but every time you risk throwing it all away um, if something goes wrong. And, and the reality is also you're working with really strong natural botanicals which depending on the season can taste very different so for instance last year I don't even know what it was if it was storm or fires or something but there's just been much less Riesling grapes than most other years and so this year because we've grown a little bit we've pretty much sucked the entire supply of Riesling grapes that was not used to make wine and that was not from concentrate because it's our main ingredient so we don't want to use one that comes from concentrate although sometimes Concentrate gets a bad rap, but it just actually helps make um, this more efficient and um, keep the flavor the same. Like with fig, for instance, you probably would prefer to use a concentrate. And um, so anyway, so now we're, you know, trying to find a new grape without changing um, the quality of our product. I think one thing that, you know, we always look back on the first production run and obviously it was so hard because it was the first time that we were doing everything, but it's actually so much work that goes into maintaining a product that already exists and the consistency of the product over time. And, you know, we are working on improving the clarity of our drink, of not having that gingering at the top, but all of these things actually happen because the product is extremely natural. And so um, it just takes so much focus to, you know, create something that is maybe more customer friendly without um, breaking, you know, our internal rules regarding quality. Yeah, there's so many considerations for, for your type of drink specifically that might be different than just making, um, you know, a, 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 something that's more standard that these manufacturers are used to creating. And I think that being in, you know, close to the ground and close to those production runs when they were happening was probably very important for you to be able to queue up the process the right way so that when it actually comes time to start introducing a bit more scale you know, you're right there and, and, and you're not making any, like you're saying, it, it's really daunting when you're putting in a big order and that could, you know, if, if they mess something up and you've, and it's not in the SLA and you've lost a whole batch of production, that's a whole bunch of capital that can go out the window. So being really uh, on top of what's happening, I think in the early stages, that's, that's, that's super important. Um, and that segues, segues uh, us into our next question, which is about funding in the super early days, right? In the earliest of stages, how did you go about, um, you know, putting together a initial working capital to get the brand up and going? And what did that allow you to uh, do in terms of proving out your concept? Well, I didn't really set out to fundraise when I started fundraising. So I was really looking for people to tell me whether this was a good idea or a bad idea. And so I reached out to everyone that I had either worked with before or that I knew personally um, to ask them for some advice and they all ended up saying I'll invest and I was like no no but I didn't ask you to invest you know <laughs> and um, and then I realized oh okay like maybe at some point I'm going to be needing some money so a few months later I had prepped my deck and I went back to those same people that were all very strong personal connection I think the, the people that said yes the earliest were people that I had worked for you know I think it's well known that your first round, like people are investing in you because your idea most likely will change. You know, we were supposed to launch in restaurants and, you know, we changed while well, we stayed really true to kind of the product because I think I had pretty crystal clear vision for what I wanted this product to taste like. So many things changed. Um, and so people were really investing in me. So 
they they invested um they took this time to really you know just say like okay like we'll invest this much and then with their names I was able to raise more money from people but it was all friends and friends of friends it was a pretty small round and most of that really went into developing our packaging you know later we had to do a tiny bridge round when COVID hit because we had we didn't have a website we didn't have all this stuff we we weren't going to launch that until much later when we had proof of concept and we couldn't really launch without that so we had to kind of raise a little bit more money to extend us but we had this beautiful product at that point to show for so it was a little bit easier and um and then you know those few hundreds of thousands of dollars really carried us through our launch and then how did how did you think about like building out a team? What type of team uh, was necessary to pull something off like uh, what you're doing with Gia? Because I know you'll probably need to, you're selling into restaurants, you're thinking about um, different plans in retail, you have your online store, uh, you have your production. So what type of team did it require um, and who, who's on board for the ride? So at that point, it was um, Henry, who is still on our team today. He's the CEO of the company. And Henry had been a friend of mine for a long time. We had worked together before. He had absolutely zero beverage experience. Um, and um, I guess I didn't either, but he was very down to figure it out with me. And I, you know, he had just left his job and he had just gone on a vacation to France and he had enjoyed many aperitivos. And when he came back, he said, I get it, I wanna do that. That sounds like exactly what I wanna do. And it was a new challenge. Um, and so we've sort of figured it out together. And then at the time of launch, we had a friend, it was a friend of someone in our network. Um, maybe we had an intern and that intern had left, but had a friend that was helping us pack orders. And it was the three of us, we'd um, taken over Westbourne in New York, which was a pretty well-loved eatery and was shut down in COVID. It unfortunately never reopened. It was one of our partner restaurants and um, we took it over and we built our entire piles of Gia and inventory and you know at the time we were actually like every time we had a sale we would label the bottle real time which is just the craziest thing <laughs> never think of doing that now we would label the bottle and we would apply the temper seal to the neck of the bottle and use our little heater to shrink the plastic on top um it was actually they were made of corn at the time and they were exploding in transit everywhere so so many learnings but that's kind of how it looked at the beginning and I assume based, you know, based on your experience in the past in branding, um, you know, did you leverage any, I assume you, you knew agencies in specific areas, did you leverage any contractors or agencies, um, you know, as it kept growing or um, did you guys just stay at it and you did the brand, the marketing um, yourself? How did you split that up, especially when you went into the e-commerce, right? Like there's so many new things in e-commerce with fulfillment, with, you know, how to acquire customers, etc. cetera. Um, how, how did the team develop into that phase? So the only agency that we worked with um, was our design agency. Um, I was a big fan of theirs and pretty much begged them to take us on. So um, that's pretty much what we did. Um, we didn't hire any other agencies. We didn't have the budget for that. I don't really think that they were getting division. We were doing everything ourselves. Uh, and honestly, even to this day, like we have some partners that we work with, but we do most of the bulk of the work ourselves because I think the brand is very unique and we have this very clear idea of what we want. So it's often easier to do that. I wonder, I, while you mentioned design, I was curious about this, about your branding process, because this is so different than, you know, whatever was in the market. And so it's kind of this balance between, okay, this we don't want this to look 
you know, maybe like exactly like, you know, a, a beer or something or, or you know, a, a wine or but we also don't want it to look like a soda. Um, what was that process like in terms of the ideation of the branding for this, especially well, given your been... background? Yeah, I, I want to say that I knew I could have recognized it if it was right, but I didn't really know how to create it. Um, and so we worked really closely with our design partners. It was like almost a year's worth of design, which is much longer than any agency, you know, would kind of care to admit is what they spend on like a single client. But, you know, I think five months before the launch, we looked at it and we were like, we hate it. Then we redid everything. And, um, to get to the place where we simplified so many things, but we were thinking, you know, a lot of it comes from kind of like personal heritage, um, my childhood growing up in France, having a French and Italian family and a lot of the brands that um, are European heritage brands and kind of like not not specifically specifically what they look like, but the feelings that they evoke for me and how we wanted to create this brand that, you know, um, paid homage to the to the past, but also was really anchored in modern times, something that would be very desirable for a modern consumer that wouldn't be scared to say, I'm going to not boost tonight um, because, you know, it's, it's really catering to people that live a certain way. Like we're on our phones all the time. We are working all the time. There's this like hyper stimulation. It's just harder to tune off than it was when our parents or our grandparents, you know, would like have wine in the evening. And so I think that we wanted it to resonate, um, but also feel very timeless and that was something that was really important to me like if I think of Gia I'm not thinking like we're going to pump out a bunch of flavors we're going to sell it as soon as possible we're going to be white claw and then we're all you know are going to buy fast cars it's like well actually you know I'd love to buy a fast car but I really want Gia to be a timeless brand I want it to be you know not the white claw but the Campari of non-alcoholic um, and I think that's really important and I assume you pass that over even to the packaging. I saw your guys' packaging and there's like a ton of detail there, even the website, right? Um, was this all, is this all done, you know, by sort of the same team that has always been part of that design or, or is that just carried along as you've sort of grown the team and have passed along the message? Um, no, it was basically our design team at that point was the three people from the agency and myself. Um, we brought on other people in the future, like our graphic designer that's not on our team now, Taylor, he's amazing, but the design process was really, and at the time it was really two people from that agency and myself. Well, I think for any, you know, people who are listening that are just, you know, going through their branding process or looking to make a brand, I just think the most important part is how you el how you implemented your actual upbringing. Whereas a lot of people go to a branding agency and they give, I want it to look like this or like this website and you're not gonna get anything unique. Um, and it's scary sometimes because you think my life is not that interesting. It's not that unique, but every single person has their unique traits that um, I think, you know, it's, it's important for people to know that so we, don't get more of the websites looking like the same and more of, you know, sort of companies kind of looking like, you know, they're, they're all coming from the same agency. But in reality, that's not the case. It's just that people need to implement their own upbringings into the branding. Yeah, I think that you can really tell when a brand is fabricated. Um, and I think for 
ours, it's also like, you know, I think Giaz on a lot of uh, other beverage brands is mood board. And while I think that it's really unfortunate, like it doesn't worry me that much because I have endless ideas for this brand. Like we can, you know, there's just so much content for us to work off of where it's just like all of the European products and this lifestyle, this idea of decompression, um, all of the, you know, inspiration that we have because they're just anchored in stories. They're really like meant to be products that are created to create special moments and you know be the catalyst for such moments and so there's just endless occasions for it we don't need to be doing what we did a few years ago and keep going I think we're just excited to do new things with this new inspiration and and that that is like a mix of personal experience and also you know today's inspirations like how we hear from customers that they're enjoying it where they like to take it um what flavors they're craving like we definitely speak to our community a lot and i think that that also makes a big difference how do you guys do that like community i know is so important and some of the most successful brands that we talk to have a really good habit of being able to continuously engage and talk to customers and gather feedback so how is that something that you guys are able to do and maintain as, and maintain doing as you continue to scale well i think with every product launch we have a bit of an opportunity so we almost always include customers before launching a product in the product development process which is great. And then, you know, like this morning, um, unfortunately, we had to announce that we're doing a price increase. 7 a.m. I was on the CX emails, reading the customer commentary, responding personally. I don't respond to all of them, of course, but I wanted to see what that feedback was. And, and we spend a lot of time on the reporting of that feedback, you know, making sure we capture trends really early. Um, it was really early on, you know, we, we really learned so much from our customers. Like we had... On our first week of launching Gia Online, 9% of our bubbles exploded in transit. That is a soul-crushing number when, you know, your margins are as low as they were for us. And we had this little money in the bank and we didn't know where that was coming from. And then we realized, you know, we have a 0% plastic commitment and we had used these corn-based temper seal on top of the bottle. And those were just not holding with the scorching temperatures that were June 2020 in New York. And so the and the bottles were overfilled a little bit, which made for a perfect storm of like the bottles popping up. And we were able to, we had no idea, you know, we never shipped product like this before. And we were able to figure this out very quickly because we worked on it with customers. They sent us um, they sent us photos, we were able to like tweak a few things and really work with them to test, you know, shipments. Um, and that was that, that, you know, we were able to revert that. Unfortunately, now we have plastic tempest seals, but we're working on another solution, hopefully. No, it's so important to be able to, to react quickly and also gather that feedback um, from your customers, because the worst thing would be if once you know it's happening for it to happen to the next incremental customer and the fact that you could nip it in the bud is so, so important. Um, and then the next thing I'd say is uh, just checking out your guys' products. It seems like you guys have also increased your different types of product offering. So I know you have drinks and you're also introducing some spreads and some other types of products. So what's on, what's on the pro product roadmap and, and tell us a little bit more about what else you guys are building. Well, I can only say so much, but we're very excited by the response that we received on Argandia, which is our Nutella alternative. We really were thinking, you know, we developed this product for the holidays because pretty much like every restful day in my house, like a Sunday or a holiday, like my mom and dad would say like, okay, we're not cooking, you guys are on your own. 
and we would make crepes and then we would slather Nutella on those crepes. And it was really like this familiar smell, this familiar, um, you know, moments. We often like take our plates and eat them on the couch, which is like super forbidden in my house. Usually it was really this, um, this moment of indulgence, which I think Gia in general is for these moments of indulgence. There's something that is very hedonistic about having a drink, making a cocktail, the slow life. And um, so we decided that in our holiday box, we would make a better for you version of a hazelnut spread. And the, even though the hazelnut spread that we had over the holidays ended up really hardening in the cold temperatures, we developed it in the summer. And then when it was time to ship it, it you know would harden. Um, people loved it. We explained to people that if you left it next to your stove, it would melt a little bit. And then when we took it off the site, we got so many complaints from people that wanted it to stay. And it's funny because it's also not like a category that is not competitive. It's like there's a lot of Nutella alternative, but there were none that I wanted to buy over and over again. And so we really, in January, when we were thinking, like we removed it, people were complaining. We were kind of like, you know what, let's bring it back. Let's make it perfect and bring it back. And so we worked super hard over the past few months to make it happen, which kind of, this is a little bit of a kind of a window into our creative process. Like it's very focused on making you know customers happy um it's very focused on creating special moments that are you know based on memories but also speak to a more modern audience and so i think that that opens the door for many more products to be developed we're working on a few new beverages honestly creating a great beverage takes a long time a lot of the ones that we're working on we've been working on since the very beginning of Gia. it's been over two years we still don't have something that's satisfying for us to put to market, um, but we're working on it really hard. Um, this summer, there will be a new spritz flavor, so that's exciting. And then we are expanding into new categories, like in the lifestyle world, over the holidays again. So testing new things, making people happy. Oh, it's so exciting. And the other thing that I think is really cool, just going, if, if, you, if anyone goes to the site and sees where you guys are stocked, I was just checking out Miami because that's where Ramon and, and I are based. And you guys are in all the coolest, all of my, all our favorite restaurants there. It looks like you guys are in Boyade, which like we can't get enough of. Um, La Nat we love Boyade. They're so great. And that spritz with rose water is delicious. It's probably one of my favorite restaurants. Oh, it's the best. So you guys are in Boyade, Cruise Kitchen, La Natural, like all, all the good spots. So mm -hmm. I saw that. I was like, okay, they, they know what's up. Um, and and the last the last question in, in regards to that and how you guys think about like cultivating this network of restaurants and distribution partners across the country, like how has that grown and how is that something that you're able to like rely on as you continue to scale new products and how do you manage it, right? As, as the number of restaurants and partners scale, like how do, how do you keep that close relationship and personal touch? That is something that we're figuring out, you know, as we speak, I think the early relationship, Boyade, La Naturelle, they were all friends of friends. So I reached out to all my investors, all my friends in the food world. I said, I'm going to Miami, who should I meet? And, you know, one person said, you should meet, um, the Boyade people, they were just opening. They were, um, Alex was the brother of someone's business partner from one of our friends. And I went there and fell in love and he said, sure, send me a case, you know? And then it's been there since. Um, La Naturale, they weren't even open yet. Actually, um, Javier made me try the first La Naturale pizza in the dining room because they were just about to open and he wanted our feedback and it was like the best pizza I've ever had. And so we were so excited. It pairs so well with denser, you know, sourdough food like that. 
Chris Gitchen, friends of French, friends of our friend Juliana. They've been incredible cheerleaders since the beginning also. I'm so happy to see them expand a little bit. Um, so those relationships, it's like every time I go to a city, I make sure to go visit them. Every time they need anything, like there's just a lot of direct communication. And then there's everyone new who I'm even more grateful for because they weren't people that I was put on email or text with. They were just people that are like, this seems cool, we'll try it. Um, and so um, for those people, you know, I'm excited to meet them personally, obviously, over the next few months and years. But we have um, someone on the team now who's dedicated to that, um, to helping them also grow their business and helping with sampling and promotion now that we can do all of these things again. And we're figuring out what it means, you know, at scale, we... Currently, we just signed our first distributor. We'll be doing that more regionally. And so we want to make sure that like our team is well-trained to be as much as hospitality forward as humanly possible. And, and hopefully it's something that we can scale. Like I really want to keep kind of the heart of Gia alive even as we grow into a bigger company. But just so you know, we're only six people now, so it's not a huge concern. <laughs> no, you guys, you guys have made it so far with, with the team and the resources you have. You guys have created an amazing product. Um, and so, you know, we just, we just want to thank you for coming on and sharing your story with us and, and the DDC pod audience today. Um, and as we wrap up here, Melanie, where can our listeners find um, you and Gia and learn more? We're on drinkgia.com for all information. Um, and then you can find me, I guess, on Instagram. We're at drinkgia and at Melanie Masarin. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for coming on. <laughs> thank you for coming on, Melanie. No, I was going to say definitely check out the Instagram. I just love the creative um, that's over there. But Melanie, thank you for, for coming on. And, and next time, you know, I was just looking, I just got hungry for La Natural after also seeing some pizza on your Instagram. So when you're back in Miami, let us know. Um, but thank you. Thank you for being here today. So much for having me.